How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture says that uh, when Christians sin, you can't lose your salvation, but you are out of fellowship. Your rapport with God is broken. Your ongoing walk with the Holy Spirit is broken. And to recover, we are to confess our sins to God. Confession simply means to admit or acknowledge uh, specific sins to God. And he instantly forgives us of those sins that we confess And he goes on to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which includes all the sins that we uh, ignored or didn't know were sins or forgot we had committed. And he cleanses us of all sin, and we are restored to fellowship, and our ongoing uh, walk with the Holy Spirit is resumed. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're ready to study the Word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you because we recognize that all that we are and all that we have comes from you, that you have given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You have supplied us with and blessed us with every spiritual blessing, and we have been identified with Christ in such a way that we can never be separated from him and we can never lose our salvation and that we are (coughs) his and we are yours Uh, for all eternity because of your matchless grace. And, Father, we're thankful for all that you have given us and provided for us, and especially for your word. And as we study your word this evening, we pray that you might help us put together the things that we study and learn this evening with the things that we have studied and learned in the past, and that God the Holy Spirit would help us to see how these things make an impact on our life, our thinking, our understanding of your word that is uh, profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction and instruction in righteousness, that we might be thoroughly and completely equipped for every good work. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Now, last time we looked at the first 10 verses of this chapter, which describes the incident that occurred when Peter and John are on their way to the temple for the afternoon prayer, about three o'clock in the afternoon, the time of prayer prior to the evening sacrifice. And we saw that as they approached the uh, temple, as they came in through the east gate and then went in through the uh, next gate, which took them into the courtyard of the women, that is the gate that is identified as the gate uh, beautiful that is mentioned here in verse 2. And outside that gate, there was a lame man who had been lame from birth. He's known by everyone in Jerusalem. He had probably been there for uh, decades uh, begging alms from the people who came to the temple. So he's well-known by anyone and everyone. They know his circumstances. They know his background. And I pointed out that in terms of healing, uh, as we see in the Scriptures, that those who are healed are 
often very different from what we typically see happen in some of these so-called healing services uh, that we find today in uh, in many types of uh, Christian ministries where you see things like uh, people who have bad backs or stiff necks or leg lengthening or things that are not what I called constitutional defects and they are not they are not diseases such as cancer or leukemia or things of that nature uh, so this is a constitutional defect. Everybody knew that he had been lame from birth. And so the fact that he is seen by uh, Peter and John, and there's no request by him to heal him. There's no evidence that he has, um, that he has any faith whatsoever. He's not thinking in terms of Jesus the Messiah. He's not thinking that, oh, these are those Christian disciples. They can heal me. He is just looking for a handout so that he can survive another day. And Peter, we're told in verse 4, looks at him and tells him to look at at him and John. Look at us, Peter says. And so when he had, Peter, so when, the lame man gave his undivided attention to Peter and John. Peter then says in verse 6, Silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, we're, you might say, well, it seems like he would have to believe what Peter said in order to get up. But notice in the next verse, he doesn't stand up. Peter reaches down and grabs hold of his arm and lifts him up. So there's no, there's no act of faith here on the part of this lame man. And when Peter lifts him up, then immediately his feet and his ankles are, are, and his legs receive strength, and he leaps about and runs leaping and praising God throughout the temple. So by that time, he realizes this is from God, and God has uh, God has healed him. At that point, he has faith. He didn't have faith prior. This is one of those examples I pointed out when we went through the doctrine of healing last time, showing that there are numerous examples in the New Testament where faith was not evident on the part of the person that was healed, and there are others where faith was clearly evident on the part of those who were healed. The point being that there are many who think that if you just have faith, that God will heal you. And yet that's not what the scriptures teach. The other thing I pointed out last time is there is a reason why the apostles are, are healing this particular individual. That uh, they were not going throughout Jerusalem healing people. Those kinds of stories are not there. They did heal a number of people. I'm not saying they didn't, but there was um, there there was a um, uh, there was guidance. Guidance said they were selective in who they healed. They didn't just walk down a, a hospital ward or go out to the pool of Bethesda and just walk along and heal every person that was there. They and neither did Jesus. They had there was a reason why this healing was conducted. And that was related to the fact that their message was that the Messiah had come and evidence of the Messiah's coming from Isaiah, as we saw last time from Isaiah 35 and other passages, taught that when the Messiah came, the lame would leap 
and the blind would receive sight, and the lepers would be healed, and this is what was being demonstrated. It was a validation of the message that John the Baptist preached that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, the kingdom of God was at hand, that Jesus preached that the kingdom of God was at hand, that the disciples preached when Jesus originally sent them out that the kingdom of God was at hand. And now that Jesus has died and been resurrected and ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father, the apostles, as a tremendous example of God's continued grace to Israel, even though they had rejected Uh, Jesus as Messiah, and they had crucified him, God continues to give them the opportunity to accept Jesus as the promised Messiah so that the kingdom would come. And this is going to be very clear from Peter's message here, starting in verse 11, that the kingdom hasn't come because it's conditioned upon the repentance of Israel. As a nation, and we've covered this to some degree when we looked at what Peter said in chapter 2, and there are a lot of similarities, but the point being that, that we're in a transition period between the day of Pentecost and the judgment that God brings on, on Jerusalem and on Israel in, in uh, AD 70 with the destruction of the temple and the conquest of, uh, of uh, Israel by the Roman army. We're in this transition period when God is still offering the kingdom to Israel, even though he knows they won't respond, even though they know that he knows they will continue in their hardness of heart towards Jesus, it's a sign of God's grace. And in place of working with uh, Israel as his chosen instrument, God is, has begun a new work with a new organization, a new organism, actually, the church, which was given birth to on the day of Pentecost. And so temporarily, Israel is set aside because of unbelief. And as Paul so uh, Paul presents it in such a picturesque image in Romans chapter 11, using the picture of the, of the olive tree, that certain branches are cut off. Now, that doesn't mean they lose salvation, doesn't mean it's impossible for them to have salvation, and in the imagery there of Romans 11, cutting off those branches doesn't mean that God has forsaken Israel, because that's Paul's whole point in Romans 9 to 11, is God has not forsaken Israel, and what he is pointing out is that he is t- they are temporarily set aside from the position of blessing. That's the, the imagery there in Romans 11 of the olive tree is an image of blessing. The root is the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is the source of blessing to Israel. And olive oil and the growth of the olive tree are images that are used throughout the Old Testament to depict uh, the richness of God's blessing on whatever the object is. But in this case, it's Israel. The removal of the, of the natural branches and the grafting in of the wild branches is a depiction of the fact that God is now blessing the wild, uh, the wild olive branches, or, or which stand for uh, Gentiles, and the Gentiles are now in a position of blessing uh, from the Abrahamic covenant. But that, as Paul states in that imagery, the the uh, natural branches will be grafted back into a place of blessing, and thus he concludes. All Israel will be saved. So Romans 11 is not 
saying that Israel is, as a nation, as a corporate entity, has been permanently set aside by God in terms of his plan and purpose. There's a future plan for Israel, and part of that I think we are seeing today in the uh, restoration of the nation and the return of numerous Numerous Jews to the land. We're almost at a point where half the Jews in the world live in Israel. And so there is this restoration that is taking place. But that this, this period we're talking about between Pentecost and the judgment on Jerusalem, this transition period, is an example where God is still reaching out to the nation Israel. And so there are certain things that are happening that happen in relation to that message, while at the same time something new has started and there is a foundation being laid in the apostolic era for the the church, this new organism. So when we come to passages, especially in the first part of the book of Acts, you have to realize this is not describing something that is to be normative in the church age. It's not something that we are to expect to happen in every generation um, by every people. This is a problem some folks have as they go to Acts and they say, see, there's healing by the apostles and uh, all these other miracles and we should expect that today. No, we shouldn't because we're not in the transition zone. And the purpose for the miracles, the purpose for the healing, the purpose for these, uh, all these signs and wonders was to reinforce the kingdom message that the kingdom was being offered, but it was rejected uh, by Israel ultimately and is postponed until uh, the Messiah actually does return when Jesus comes back at the second coming. And it's at that point in the future that he will establish that kingdom promised in the Old Testament uh, to David and through the prophets, especially Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the the, uh, minor prophets, and when that happens, then, the, then that fulfillment will take place that, Paul, uh, that Peter speaks of in this particular chapter. So we're in this transition. Now, as I pointed out last time, you know, I think I've opened the wrong uh, slideshow here. No. What happened? Where am I? Okay, that's okay. I don't lose my mind very often. We focused last time. We started off with Isaiah 35, 5, and 6. And in verse 6, the lame shall leap like a deer. So this is what we see with this this, uh, lame man. He's leaping and running around the temple. It is the fulfillment of this this particular prophecy. Now, as we addressed these questions last week, the point was that the reason for the healing is to substantiate the claim that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had come to offer the kingdom, that it was a legitimate uh, claim and legitimate offer. Now, in Acts 3, verses 9 and 10, at the end of the session last time, I focused on um, verse 9 and 10. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they recognized him. All the people there worshiping that afternoon in the temple recognized who this individual was. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to them. 
Now, I just want to point out one thing in terms, because as you, you all will know who've been coming for a while, this phrase is significant, and I just want to make kind of a side comment here. They were filled with wonder and amazement. Now, in the box up there, I have the Greek phrase, uh, and this is, the verb is an aorist passive indicative from plerao. That's your, the first word, and you can read from top to bottom there, and it gives you the parsing of that particular verb. And that's a verb familiar to all of you because this is the same verb that is used in Ephesians 5, uh, 518, be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. So this is the same verb. It is also in a passive voice, which means uh, they, are, they receive the action of the verb, just as we receive the action of the filling of the Holy Spirit. But this is a, not an imperative. It's not a command. It's in the indicative mood, so it's simply describing something that took place. And then we have that English preposition, with. Now, when we see translations of Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Holy Spirit, we often hear it translated that way. But this, this English preposition, with, or in, or by, can all translate a, a Greek preposition, E-N, which is the preposition that with a, with a dative uh, object expresses instrumentality or means. And means can be expressed by, in English by the preposition with. We hit the ball with the bat. The bat is the instrument that we use to hit the ball. Or we could say we hit the ball by means of the bat, but we usually say with. But with can also indicate other things. For example, you may say, um, uh, uh, ask somebody to fill, fill my uh, cup up here with, uh, what, with whatever's in that uh, pitcher. Now, in that sentence, we're describing the content of filling by using that preposition with. We're not talking about means, we're talking about content. And so that's a completely different concept, but, but it's very easy to become confused with that, with that English usage as to what is being said there. And so this is why a lot of people, when they read in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit, they think that they're being, the content of the filling is the Holy Spirit, that they're getting more of the Spirit. And that's not what Paul is saying at all. He's talking about instrumentality there. He's not talking about content. Now, how do I know that? I know that because in, Greek, in the Greek language, you don't express content with an in preposition and the dative. You express it with a genitive noun. And this is what we have here. So I just wanted to illustrate that principle. You hear me teach that a lot. And uh, here's just a basic example of it. They were filled... And then that first word, thombus, is a genitive singular noun of thombos. So they're filled with uh, wonder and also and amazement. So both of those nouns, thombus and uh, thombos and ecstasis, are in the genitive case. So this is expressing the content with which they're filled or it's actually an idiom to express a description of somebody. 
Okay, and, and so that's very clear here that when you have plerao and you're talking about the content of the filling, you're going to find a noun in the genitive case. But if you're talking about the instrument that provides the filling, then that's going to be in the dative case, which is how you have it in Ephesians 5.18. So Ephesians 5.18 isn't talking about getting more of the Spirit. It's talking about the Holy Spirit filling you with something else. And when you compare Ephesians 5.19 and following with Colossians 3.16 and following, you see the same kinds of a list, that we're to be thankful for all things, we are to uh, sing in praises and hymns to God, we're to submit to one another, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, wives are to submit to their husbands, etc. In other words, you have a list of results in Colossians 3.17 uh, and following. And you have a list of results in Ephesians 5:19 and following, and they're the same results. You have different commands. In Ephesians 5:18, the command is to be filled by means of the Spirit. In Colossians 3:16, the command is to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Letting the Word of Christ dwell within you is content. That's the coffee in the cup. The letting the Holy Spirit fill you with something is instrumentality. That's the coffee pot. That's the means of getting the content into you. So those two come together that way. Now, when you use the word plerao with, uh, with these genitive nouns, it describes something, and it comes to uh, be basically an idiom for describing uh, someone's character in some cases or something that is uh, dominating their character at that particular moment. There are three other notable places in Acts where you have this same kind of phrase. In Acts 5.17, we have the, the verse, Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. Zelaos is, uh, is the word there, which actually means jealousy. But it's the same verb. They were filled, passive form of plerao. They were filled with jealousy. And so that just came to be an idiomatic way of expressing that they were jealous, that jealousy was dominating their character at that particular uh, time. Acts 13.45 says, When the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. Same word again. It just You can just see how the... Uh, Translators of the King James Version vary how they translate these words into English. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, not by means of an envy is describing the content, or here it's, it's just an idiom for a description of what's dominating them, uh, their character at that particular, uh, that particular moment. And then in Acts 19.29, we have the phrase, the, the verse, so the whole city was filled with confusion. In other words, everybody was confused. It's just an idiom describing character. Now, the problem that, that I have seen with some biblical exegetes is they will say, well, see, in Acts, plerao is used to describe character. Therefore, Ephesians 5.18 should be understood, that is, being filled with the, with the Spirit should be understood as a description of, of spiritual character. But 
Ephesians 5.18 is a completely different kind of grammatical construction than these. So you're comparing apples and oranges. So I just thought that this would be a great place to illustrate uh, why it's important to understand those distinctions from the original language and that this is, these phrases are not talking about uh, anything that's related to uh, being filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. So in Acts 3.11 now, we have the result uh, of, of the healing. As the crowds hear that this lame man has been healed, uh, they, they are in, they're amazed. They're, they're, it's, it's a wonder. It's, it's got their attention. That was a secondary purpose for miracles, was to get people's attention. That's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose was to provide credentials that the claim of the Messiah to be offering the kingdom was valid, that the Messiah was present or in this now in the post-resurrection time had been present. So the, the, uh, Peter will give an explanation in verses 12 to 16 as to what has happened, and then he will challenge them with why it has happened, what its significance is for them in verses 17 to 26. So he says, now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, I would imagine that he was had grown quite fond of them in a very short amount of time, uh, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's. Other translations just identified as Solomon's portico, greatly amazed. Now, Solomon's porch or Solomon's portico is not named that because this was there when Solomon was there or this was there when uh, because Solomon built it. The original temple, the first temple that was built by Solomon, was completely destroyed and uh, <clears throat> with no remains by the um, by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And after that, the the uh, Temple Mount basically was just left as a rubble heap uh, for the next 70 years. And then, with the return of the Jews uh, from captivity, beginning in about 538 B.C. Uh, to 516, they began to rebuild the temple. Well, one of the first things they would have had to do was to clear out all that debris and level the top of the uh, of, of the Temple Mount. And since they probably weren't too concerned with leaving archaeological artifacts for generations, some two or three thousand years, 2,500 years later, uh, there's not anything that we have found definitively. There's been a pomegranate, a uh, little pomegranate thing here or there, but, you know, there's some debate over whether this, this is legitimate. If you go to Israel, there's an antiquities dealer on every corner and in between. And even the and, and and in between the legitimate antiquities dealers hidden probably back behind the uh, storefronts, you have other places where they have built extremely sophisticated um, p- um, places to manufacture counterfeit antiquities. It's an enormous business in Israel, and it, they are so sophisticated. I mean, these criminals are so sophisticated in their ability to counterfeit antiquities that they fool the legitimate antiquity, the experts. And, for example, uh, when was it, about four or five years ago, they discovered the ossuary, that's a bone box, 
an ossuary that had an inscription on it that this was uh, James, uh, the brother of Jesus. Now, the problem was that there, there was doubt as to whether or not this phrase, the brother of Jesus, was original. And it took two or three years of intense scrutiny scrutiny and laboratory analysis and a lot of debate. And there are still some archaeologists who affirm that it's legitimate, but most people have accepted the findings that it, it wasn't legitimate. It was a forgery. And so even the experts, so I sort of uh, encourage people not to buy too many antiquities uh, when they go to Israel because if the experts can get fooled like that, and no matter how honest and how much integrity some of these uh, uh, dealers in the shops are, and some of them are, are, I don't doubt their integrity, but they can get fooled uh, just as anybody else can. And so there, there wasn't much left from that first temple period or, in, or anything. We're not sure that we found anything that can be legitimately traced to the first temple period. And then after Zerubbabel built the second temple, it was really, it wasn't nearly as grand as, as, Solom, as Solomon's temple. And so it uh, it needed to be refurnished, and so Herod took that upon himself. Herod was just an incredible, incredibly brilliant uh, architect, and he decided to rebuild the temple or just refurbish it. He didn't. Uh, temple sacrifices never ceased during the reconstruction of the temple, and they took the whole uh, the whole temple area on top of the uh, mountain. Uh, which is would be depicted underneath this this uh, depiction of the uh, of the temple, and they built a they lev- basically leveled the top of the mountain, built parts up, lowered other parts, and established an enormous foundation that would hold this temple, and that the temple of of Herod was going to outdo the grandeur of the temple, uh, the temple of Solomon. So nothing that was part of the Herodian temple, the, the second temple, is considered to be. Uh, part of uh, the original. Now, as you see in this depiction, here's the main temple itself. Here's the eastern gate. This is the uh, gate called Beautiful here. And so they came out, and then this section along here where you have a colonnade is was referred to as Solomon's uh, portico. And here you have, um, let me see, I'll go here. This is another depiction, artist depiction. It would be all along this wall here, and look very similar to what's back in the back along the uh, along the back wall. And here we look at it from the back side of the temple, and so you can see the colonnade along this wall here. So this is the area uh, where uh, the people are gathering around Peter and John and the lame man, and they are just they just can't believe what they have heard and what they have seen with their own eyes. So, verse 12, when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. So, he's going to take the opportunity now that he has gathered an audience to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now, did you hear what I said? There's a distinction between the gospel and the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom focuses on still the facts of regeneration and forgiveness of sin, but it is targeted to the response that that by Israel accepting Jesus as Messiah, then the kingdom, the promised messianic kingdom would come. 
So Peter responds to the people in verse 12, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? See, Peter is not taking any credit for this at all. You can see a little spiritual growth has taken place in Peter over the last several months after his betrayal and a few other things where he stuck his foot in his mouth. He has learned some humility, and he recognized immediately states, we didn't do this. This is not our power. It's not because we're more spiritual than anybody else. Just because we're an apostle, let me add, just because you're a pastor or teacher doesn't make you any more spiritual than anybody else. So recognizes that the power comes completely and totally uh, from God. Second thing I want to comment on here is that when they're, they're looking at him, he's got all this attention. Remember, these are the same folks that just a few days before, maybe a week or two weeks, we don't really know what the, what the uh, uh, time difference was between the events on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2 and the events in chapter 3, uh, but it was a very short amount of time. These are the same people that would have been aware of what transpired on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles and there's the uh, flames, uh, tongues of fire that are over the apostles where they heard this mighty rushing wind and the apostles start to communicate to everyone there in Jerusalem in their native languages through the miracle of the uh, uh, gift of languages and then uh, Peter preached at that time and made the gospel clear. So this is the same group of people. Not only that, but two months earlier, basically, they were they were there when Jesus was crucified. And you have the resurrection. And then before that, if they were native to living in the land, they had heard about all of Jesus' miracles. So it's not, it's not as if they had had no frame of reference for this whatsoever. And yet they are just astounded that this is this has happened. People are slow to figure out the meaning of the truth. A lot of people need to hear it, hear the gospel eight, nine, ten, twenty, thirty times before it finally clicks. Um, some studies I've read where they talk to people about this indicate that. Most people hear the gospel between seven and ten times before they were saved. They ask people, um, how many times, if you can remember when you were saved, how many times did you heard the gospel before uh, you finally trusted in Jesus? And so based on responses, they, uh, they indicate that. So Peter saw it, responds to the people. Uh, he says, why are you looking at this? Why, why is this such a, uh, such a surprise? And then... Let me skip down here to this the verse I'm looking for. Nope. Go back. Then in verse thirteen we read. In verse 12 we read, So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, and he said, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us, though by our power, godliness, who made this man walk, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Now, at this point, Jesus, I mean, uh, Peter is indicting the people because of their rejection of, of Jesus' claim uh, to be the Messiah. But this isn't an indictment that is blaming uh, all Jewish people or all Jews for the crucifixion. He is talking to the people who lived in Jerusalem primarily, who were there, who were among the crowd that was uh, responsible for uh, rejecting Jesus and accepting Barabbas in place of Jesus. One of Pilate had said, pick the one you want to live, and the other one I'll, I'll crucify. And so he is speaking to them and to that generation. He's not making a statement as uh, has been uh, unfortunately used down through the generations that is uh, assigning blame to every Jew that walked uh, on the face of the earth. He is speaking to that generation that had been personally involved in uh, choosing Barabbas, rejecting Jesus, and had make, made the decision to uh, made the decision to have Jesus crucified. He begins by saying, "The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." He's very clear in how he is presenting his argument. He takes us back to the Old Testament, back to Genesis, and identifies the God that he is speaking about as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is referred to by a couple of different key words in the Old Testament. First, there is the, the Hebrew word El, or Elohim in the plural, which would include the idea of a plurality within the Godhead. And that word El, or Elohim, comes from, uh, uh, or is a cognate to a, a, uh, a Canaanite word, uh, also an Aramaic word, El, which was just a generic name for God. And so anytime you were going to refer to a God or a deity, the word that was used was was uh, El or Elohim. So usually in the Old Testament, when it, or in, it, it translates El, uh, we have the word God in English in lowercase. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob also had a personal name, which was represented by four letters in the Hebrew, Y-H-W-H. And because of the influence of German scholarship and other things that uh, there's usually a shift between the Y to a J and the W to a V, and usually this is pronounced as Yahweh or Yahweh. And we know the first syllable would have been pronounced Yah because it's the last syllable in a lot of names that you find in the Old Testament, like Zechariah, God remembers. So that last syllable in Zechariah is the first syllable uh, in the name of God. But if you're talking about El, which is a generic term for God, then uh, you have to identify who it is that you're speaking about because El was also the name for the chief God in the uh, Canaanite pantheon, equivalent to the uh, uh, Greek Zeus and the Roman Jupiter, uh, uh, excuse me, the Greek uh, Uranus and the Roman Saturn. And then their son is Zeus, which is equivalent to uh, Baal uh, in the Canaanite pantheon. So 
El is the chief god in that pantheon. And it's also, uh, it's also a cognate of the Arabic word Allah. So Allah is not a personal name for the Islamic god. It's just a generic name for deity. But Allah is not the same as El. Allah is the God of Abraham Ishmael, not Abraham and Isaac. Allah is a God who hates the Jews and seeks the destruction of all the Jews at the end of time. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a God who has chosen the Jewish people and will bring them to a time of restoration in the end and bless them so that Allah is not to be identified with the L of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are two distinct deities whose names just in the generic form just happen to be uh, to be similar. But because a lot of people today are not very well instructed in things uh, of this nature, uh, we, we often want to say, well, you know, Allah, L, these are all the same God. And you will hear people say that, that uh, Islam and Christianity and Judaism all worship the same God. And we do not. We do not worship the same God at all. And that is a, an abominable heresy to even suggest that they worship the same God. So Peter makes it very clear. Whenever you're communicating to an unbeliever, you always need to make sure you define your terms so that they understand uh, what you're saying and about whom you're speaking. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and then he adds another phrase, the God of our fathers, our fathers, that is the patriarchs of Israel. So he is speaking to them specifically of the God who was revealed in the Old Testament in the Torah written by Moses and on down through the Old Testament that this God glorified his servant Jesus. Now, when he uses that phrase, his servant Jesus, He's using, once again, he's using a loaded phrase that if you were a Jew at that time in history, you were familiar with your Hebrew scriptures. And you would know, as soon as you hear, heard that word, my servant, you would immediately be aware of the many passages in Isaiah that relate to uh, this promised future servant who would come, who would, it is identified as, as the Messiah. And if you turn with me in your Bibles uh, back to <coughs> Isaiah, and we come to Isaiah chapter 40, uh, there's a distinction between the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, which focus on a warning of future judgment that will come upon Israel as well as judgment upon the Babylonians and others. And there's a shift in, ver in chapter 40, and, the f and this second section is often called, uh, <clears throat> often related to the servant, the song of the servant, because the focus of chapters 40 through 48 is upon the comfort of God, and the message here is not one of judgment, but is one of salvation and hope, and it is announced in verse 1, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God, speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hands double for all her sins. Now, has that happened yet? No, that has not happened yet. This is speaking of a time 
when Jerusalem is to be comforted and Jerusalem's warfare is ended. And if you've paid any attention to the news in just the last six weeks, you know that there's a tremendous amount of conflict that continues to rage about who owns uh, Jerusalem. And I've covered this uh, numerous times in previous lessons that uh, aside from just the biblical arguments that God has given the land to the Jewish people, uh, international law based on the uh, San Remo Accords coming out of World War I and finalized in uh, 1920, accepted and uh, validated by over 50 nations, uh, including the United States, and um, was uh, set the boundaries for the new nations that were carved up out of the old Ottoman Empire. The San Remo Conference was an addendum to the Versailles Treaty that ended World War One, and in the at Versailles they reestablished and reset the boundaries for all the nations in Europe. They didn't have time to reset the boundaries with the breakup of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire had dominated all of the Middle East. You didn't have Turkey. You didn't have Syria. You didn't have Lebanon. You didn't have Jordan. You didn't have Israel or Palestine. You didn't have uh, Iraq. Uh, you didn't have uh, Saudi Arabia. All of that was part of the Ottoman Empire. And then with the conclusion of World War One, the Ottoman Empire basically imploded finally. And the European nations, the great powers, the four great powers, uh, France, England, Italy, and Japan, the United States did not participate. Remember, we had rejected the whole League of Nations thing under uh, Woodrow Wilson. That the, um, th these powers met, the U.S. was there as an observer, met in San Remo in Italy, and they reset, they had been given the international authority to determine the boundaries for these new nations that came out of the Ottoman Empire, or the borders that we have today for Turkey, Iraq, uh, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia were all determined at that conference. So those borders are not in dispute. Also at that conference, they adopted the policy statement of, of, uh, of England known as the Balfour Declaration in, in toto. They, they just brought the verbiage completely into San Remo and set aside the, all of the land w um, west of the Jordan River to be for, as a national homeland uh, for the Jewish people. That's international law. And yet it's been ignored and forgotten for over uh, 90 years now because uh, of just all of the conflict over, over Israel. But all that land was set aside, and it was never overturned. The UN, no UN resolution can overturn that. Uh, it was set, in fact, original UN resolutions in the late 30s reaffirmed uh, the, everything in, in the uh, San Remo Accords. So all of the land... Uh, was uh, west of the Jordan was to be given to Israel. But what's happened? Well, in 1947, you had the U.N. vote in November of 1947 that repartitioned the land and took even more of the uh, western part of the land west of the Jordan and took it away from Israel and gave it to the Arabs. And then you had the 1940, May 1948 Declaration of Independence for Israel and then their war for independence uh, ending up with the... Uh, uh, a truce line, an armistice line, it's called the Green Line, 
that uh, was roughly the same borders as the 67 borders you hear alluded to and referenced uh, as the president came along and said that he wanted Israel to go back to the 67 borders. Even the UN in 1967 said that the, that the, the, the 67 borders were indefensible. You couldn't go back to them. And, and, and so then there's been the expansion uh, as, as Jerusalem has grown over the last... Um, over the last 50 years, uh, Jerusalem has grown, or 60 years actually, Jerusalem has grown and grown and grown, and so now there's a tremendous dissension of what are we going to do with Jerusalem. There are those who have tried to divide Jerusalem. The Palestinians want to make Jerusalem a capital. The, uh, <clears throat> Israel says it's their capital, which it is, based on San Remo. But you don't have, there, obviously, the warfare of Jerusalem hasn't ended. So this is a prophetic statement that focuses on a future in time. Then you have in verse 3 the statement, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is a prophecy indicating that there would be a, an announcement prior to the coming of God to establish his kingdom and that he, this is the message that he would cry out. Now, of course, this was fulfilled by John the Baptist, and he was the forerunner of Jesus as the Messiah, and he is the one who announced, prepare the way of the Lord, and his message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the, the passage here and the chapters go on to uh, focus on uh, the, establish, the future establishment of the kingdom and to focus again and again on this individual that is identified as my servant. For example, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. So just turn over a couple of chapters, a couple of pages. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, we read, Behold my servant whom I uphold. Now, who is speaking in that verse? That would be God the Father. But he speaks of one who is his servant, my elect one, my choice one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him that he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now notice, how many divine personages do we have there in Isaiah 42.1? We have God, Yahweh, who is speaking, and his spirit. Two distinct entities there. So, see, you have these indications in the Old Testament that there is a plurality in the Godhead. The Trinity didn't just... that The word was coined in the 2nd century uh, A.D., and the concept of the Trinity is theologically defined at the Council of Nicaea, but the concept of plurality in the Godhead goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and, and the word Elohim. And throughout the Old Testament, there are clearly these indications of plurality in the Godhead. So here you have God the Father, Yahweh, saying, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my choice one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. He, a bruised reed, he will not break. And smoking flax, he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands, so wait for his laws. So here he's indicated he will not rest until he's established that kingdom. 
Now, another verse that talks about my servant, we can turn over a few more chapters. I'm not hitting all of them, just a few of the key ones. Isaiah chapter 49 speaks of this servant of God as a light to the Gentiles, that he's going to go to the Gentiles, not just to Israel. And in verse 6 we read, Indeed, he said, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. It's too narrow a concept to just lift up the tribes of Judah and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So the servant here is to supply salvation throughout the whole earth. Now, What's interesting is in the history of rabbinic thought in Judaism, uh, one of the problems that uh, they often had was a large number of, of Jews who would convert to Christianity when they read this part of Isaiah. And I've been told uh, by uh, some that, that the rabbis today don't want to encourage too many people to read either Isaiah or Daniel because they start asking a lot of tough questions. And in fact, when you, uh, if you go to a synagogue, they read just portions of Scripture, and they only study portions of Scripture out of the Pentateuch, out of the Torah, the first five books of Moses. They don't spend time going through the rest of the Old Testament, and they rarely ever even read the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures. They just focus on the Torah. That keeps them away from any of these Messianic prophecies. So... In Isaiah 49, we again have this reference to the the servant of Yahweh who is going to take the light to the Gentiles. And then verse 7, that says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One. Now, I'm just mentioning that now because uh, here in uh, Acts um, Acts 3, 13 and 14, it refers to Jesus as the Holy One. This is a title that comes, also comes right out of this section of the Song of the Servant in Isaiah. Uh, the, he's, in Acts 3.14, he's called the Holy One and the Just. So in Acts, uh, I mean, uh, Isaiah 49.7, that says, The Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, Kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. So here there is a connection a, between the Holy One of Israel and the, the servant. And the servant is seen as the servant of rulers, but also one that the rulers, the kings, will rise and worship. So he is seen as being subordinate to the kings as a servant at one in one way, and also the ruler and the authority over the servants, oh, I mean over the kings, in a in another way, and so uh, this is the redeemer of Israel. He is the one who will provide redemption for their salvation. The redeemer, uh, Israel, the holy one. Then skip over a couple of more chapters to Isaiah fifty-two. Isaiah 52, again, there's a focus on redemption. The focus here is on Jerusalem. And in verse 13, we read, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently or wisely. He shall be exalted and extolled and very high, just as many were astonished at you. So his visage 
That means his countenance, his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So here the servant is one who's clearly had something happen to him that that marred and harmed and uh, destroyed his image and his appearance uh, more than any man. And then in verse 15 we read, So shall he sprinkle many nations, which is a reference to like sprinkling the blood on the, uh, on the altar, so it has to do with the application of salvation. Kings shall shut their mouths at him for what had not been told them they shall see. And then, of course, we come to the most significant chapter in all of this section in Isaiah chapter 53, which speaks of this suffering servant in a much more direct way. And there Isaiah begins in verse 1, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Asking a rhetorical question. The answer is going to be my servant. For he, a reference to my servant, shall grow up before him. Who's the second him? The he is my servant. The the him is Yahweh. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. So it's talking about his phys- the physical growth and development of the Messiah, that he will be a human being and he grows uh, like a normal human being. But he's not going to, uh, he's not, you're not going to look at him and go, just look at him. Isn't he gorgeous? He must be the Son of God. In fact, what this next verse indicates is that there was nothing in terms of Jesus' physical appearance that set him apart from anybody else. He would not have found himself on the cover of People magazine. He he has no form or comeliness or beauty, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. So physically, there was nothing that set him apart from anyone, any other Jew in the first century. He looked like any other uh, Jewish person in that generation. But then Isaiah goes on to say he's despised and rejected by men. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. And the plural, first-person plural here, is talking about as a collective unity, he is rejected, uh, and he is despised by man. And then verse 4 begins to get into the idea of substitutionary atonement. Surely he has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In other words, he's viewed as an outcast, someone to stay away from, and yet he is the one who was uh, t- uh, bearing in his own body on the cross our sins. That's verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. That's an idea of substitution. He's wounded for our transgressions. He's bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or the punishment for our peace, that is peace with God, was upon him, and by his stripes, that is the beating that occurred before he went to the cross, by his stripes we are healed. And then verse 6 states, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The first point is that we're all rebellious. We've all scattered like sheep and rejecting the shepherd who is God, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, perfect picture of substitutionary payment for sin. The, our iniquity isn't laid on us. Our iniquity is laid on him. 
Verse 7, he's oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He never utters a sound through all the beatings and the whippings and everything and the crucifixion, the nails going into his feet and into his hands. He never utters a word. Why? I think there's a reason for that, and that is because in the most excruciating torture and pain we can possibly imagine, when most of us would have been uh, rendered unconscious after we had screamed ourselves hoarse, he hasn't said a thing. He doesn't scream until God the Father imputes to him the sins of the world. Then he screams. See, all that physical torture, all the physical pain that he endured was absolutely nothing to him. What caused the pain was bearing our sin. So he is like a sheep before cheers, he is silent. Verse 8 goes on to say, He was taken from prison, from judgment. Who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. That it again emphasizes substitution and the payment for sin. They made his grave with the wicked. Another prophecy. He's buried with the criminals. He's hung on the cross between two criminals. Uh, he's, they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. He's buried in the tomb of a rich man, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, and then he, Isaiah says, because he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. There was, he was guiltless. He was perfect. He was without sin. Yet, verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. So again, we have this emphasis on atonement for sin. When you make him an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. That is, God the Father sees what occurs on the cross, his righteousness is satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant, now we see again this phrase, the righteous servant, uh, Peter picks up on this terminology in verse four, Acts 3.14, you denied the holy one and the just, the just is the same words for just and righteousness in both Hebrew and Greek. Um, so he is righteous. He's my righteous servant. will justify many. That is a doctrine of justification by faith alone. For he, Why? Because he bears their iniquities. Again, substitutionary atonement. Therefore, verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered or identified with the transgressors. And again, we have substitutionary atonement. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the, the key prophecy, I think, in all of Isaiah. Everything in the servant section leads to this and flows from this. And this is what would come to the mind of, of uh, Peter's hearers when he uses this terminology of my servant, the Holy One, and the just. He's identifying Jesus with the servant of Isaiah. Now we'll come back and finish uh, Peter's sermon next time with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these passages, to reflect again upon the fact that, that Jesus didn't just show up at some time in history, but that there was a plan and a preparation, and that that included revelation from yourself uh, down through the centuries from the uh, original uh, 
prophecy indicating a future Savior in Genesis 3.15 all the way down through the Old Testament and that all of these prophecies, over 300 prophecies, were all fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth and that he is the Messiah who came, the suffering servant who came to bear the sins of the world that many would be justified. Father, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you for all that you've given us and that it's all by grace and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.